0: I'm going to give you today the top 18 foods that literally either are estrogen decoy lookalikes that fill receptors, that are literally shutting down aromatase, the fat enzyme that's converting into more estrogen, and that are literally degrading and down-regulating estrogen receptors on your cancer cells. Come hell or high water, I get these top three foods in my body every single day, and so do my sons. I make sure of it. That's how anti-cancer these foods are beyond breast cancer. Soy, cruciferous vegetables, leafy greens, and
1: flax seeds. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world and in hundreds of cities in the U.S., I want to say hi to the exam roomies listening in Sacramento, California, in Houston, Texas, Anchorage, Alaska, and beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. I appreciate you helping us make the world a healthier place. This is episode 84 of season 4, number 279 overall. It is also part 3 of our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series with Dr. Christy Funk. And today the focus shifts to anti-estrogen foods. As a matter of fact, Dr. Funk has the top 18 of them. And you're going to hear her talk about how estrogen is big time fuel for breast cancer. On the last episode, she actually coined the term breast cancer candy, and that is exactly what estrogen is. It is the very thing feeding four out of every five breast cancer cases. So these foods, not only will they reduce your risk of occurrence, but if you're a survivor or a thriver, as Dr. Funk likes to say, they also have a huge benefit of reducing the risk of recurrence. And speaking of thrivers, we're going to hear from one today. This is a double episode, so it is going to be really good to chat with Lorraine Fox. Her story is one that may actually get you choked up a little bit. Miss Fox found a lump in her breast not long after her own sister lost her battle with breast cancer. And she took in her nephew, was raising him as her own, made him a brother to her own son at the time that she was diagnosed. But Miss Fox, she would go on to beat breast cancer and raise both of these young men, one of whom went on to become a star in the NBA. De'Aaron Fox is his name. And the way that De'Aaron honored his mom on the night that he was drafted into the league. Just wow. So I can't wait for her to share her story with you. But we start with Dr. Christy Funk and the top 18 cancer-fighting anti-estrogen foods. Dr. Funk, thank you so very much for being here.
0: Uh, oh, thanks for having me. I love the Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign.
1: I'm wearing my shirt today. I'm representing Rocket Girl, Rocket. So the last time you were on the show, you did the top 12 breast superfoods. Fantastic. It was a great, tasty list. But today we're gonna switch gears a little bit. You've got another list, but this one is the top 18 anti-estrogenic foods. So 18 foods here that we're going to be talking about. But before we get into the food, I actually want to ask you about anti-estrogenic pills, which breast cancer patients have to take. So let's start just by talking about how those pills actually work.
0: Perfect. Yeah. That's an important thing to understand when you're trying to think about breast cancer and how to reduce risk or reduce recurrence risk if you're already a thriver. And This is especially important because 80% of all breast cancers are fed and fueled by estrogen. That means that this year alone, you've got about 268,000 invasive cancers plus another 40 to 50,000 in situ cancers for a grand total of around 310, 80% of them. We're landing on 248,000 breast cancer patients year after year after year having an estrogen driven tumor what can decrease estrogen? and How do you do it? So typical of pharmaceutical companies and Western medicine pills can do it. And indeed they do. So here are the three mechanisms by which our pills that we throw at what we offer to every single breast cancer patient. Um, this is how their mechanisms work. So <clears throat> you've got two main sources of estrogen in your body. You, my friend have one. Women have two. So resource number one is the ovary, right? It's spewing out estrogen all lifelong until uh, national average 51 years and 10 months, menopause hits. Definition of menopause and no period for the last 12 months. Your ovary then is spewing out estrogen until it doesn't. This is important. This will help a lot of women will be like, oh no, I know why this pill and not that pill. The other source of estrogen Everywhere you have a fat cell, there's an enzyme called aromatase that is taking precursor steroids coming from your adrenal gland and from your ovary. The ovary that shut off the estrogen still spews out a bit of testosterone and your adrenal gland spews out testosterone, androstenedione, other steroids, aromatase, little enzyme factory takes in testosterone, spits out estrogen. Okay. So that's your other source of estrogen. Hmm. Do overweight or obese women who have more fat, therefore more aromatase, have more estrogen? I don't know. Stay tuned for next week when we talk about how obesity relates to breast cancer. Okay, so next, the drugs. Here are the different drugs. You've got three ways to stop this receptor on a cell from getting hit with estrogen so that the cell cancer can multiply and divide. The first is to just block it. That's what tamoxifen does. It's an estrogen decoy. It looks like it. It's like a key fitting into a lock, but it sits there. And now the real estrogen can't come. And without its cancer fuel, this cell peters out and dies. So way one is to block it. That is required when your ovary is sending out pure estrogen into your bloodstream because you need something to outcompete it and hit the receptor first. What if you don't have ovaries or what if you're in menopause? Where's your only source of estrogen coming from? the fat. So why don't you just go to the faucet and turn it off rather than trying to mop up all the water with your tamoxifen, like beating it, right? Just stop it. So that's the aromatase inhibitors. That's Femara, uh, Aromacin, Arimajax, those drugs. They go out to the fat and they shut off the aromatase enzyme. So you're not making any estrogen. Then there's um, Faslodex, which is a, a dual thing of blocking the receptor, but over time degrades the receptor. So now you're down-regulating the number of estrogen receptors that are on cancers. And I will say, in general, I- except for stage four cancers, you remove the tumor from the breast. So what we're really aiming all these drugs at are at the theoretical possibility in stages one, two, and three, zero, one, two, and three. Um, or the physical reality in stage four of tumor cells in lung, liver, brain, or bone, but that especially when you're not stage four, you're only taking these pills as a precaution, right? It's, it's like an insurance policy that if there are some rogue cells, because we already took care of the breast cancer in the breast, if there are still cells out there, they too express the estrogen receptor, just the way the mama cell did that was in your breast way back when. So that's what the pills are doing behind the scenes on a daily basis. And I will say that that is tried and true you you wake up or before you go to bed, you swallow that pill and it's doing its job right it's blocking the receptor it's shutting off the enzyme very reliably so I don't want especially the more uh, aggressive subtypes of breast cancer out there, and especially so there are three types of of estrogen uh driven breast cancers that are on these pills that are um you can subdivide who they are based on genetic analyses of the t- cancer itself. It gets into the biology of the cancer based on a number of genomic markers. You may, if you have breast cancer, start to understand what I'm referring to. These studies called prints or Oncotype, they give us the underlying driving biology of the tumor and how much of it is truly estrogen driven. And the really aggressive cancers out there, estrogen positive, they could be HER2 positive or negative, but they're fast. They generally need chemotherapy and they come back fast. In other words, it's the first five years after your surgical treatment that you really need to be on these anti-estrogen pills. There's a huge movement now of like, maybe you should be taking them for 10 because in the long run, another 3.3% of people won't become stage four if you take it for 10 years. Women hate these pills, right? Like hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, insomnia, mood swings, mental acuity, drops. So they really don't want to be on it at all, let alone for 10 years. There's, it turns out to be an ultra low risk group based on mammoprint genetic subtyping of the tumor. The ultra lows, it turns out, have such indolent tumors that are lazy and slow moving and actually gone already, right? Cause already had surgery that they're, they can stop their antiestrogens at two years or even less with zero impact on 20 year survival. So that's that person. Then you have, and this is the surprise to me. It's the low risk woman. Her estrogen driven tumor is not wildly aggressive. So it's not coming back fast, but it's also not ultra low, super lazy. It's just like the tortoise in the hair. This is the tortoise. Like it's there. It's plodding along. This is the cancer story that you hear about recurring like 10, 20 years from now. You're like, what? I thought it was like gonzo, but now it's back in bone 20 years later. That's this person. So we now have a better idea of who can maybe skip out on the estrogen therapy, who can take it, who really gets a huge benefit from suffering through it for 10 years, five years, five years, the high risk person, or someone who really needs to think about it for 10 years. But here's the beautiful thing food does the exact same three things. I'm going to give you today. The top 18 foods and drink that literally either are estrogen decoy lookalikes that fill receptors, that are literally shutting down aromatase, the fat enzyme that's converting into more estrogen, and that are literally degrading and down regulating estrogen receptors on your cancer cells. I'm not saying to eat these foods to the exclusion of the pills. That's a conversation you can have with your doctor, you should have, but they're
1: pretty darn effective. So shall we jump in? Oh, I see there the top 12 breast superfoods. So are we going to start with the recap?
0: We're going to start with the recap and present day. It just happens to be that the top 12 breast superfoods, each and every one of them has some anti-estrogenic capabilities.
1: Giddy up.
0: Giddy up. Two for one, people. So (laughs) in case you missed it or don't remember here are the top 12 breast superfoods that are also anti-estrogenic, blocking the superfood that your cancer loves, which is estrogen. So we've got, by the way, these top three, I promise without any lie or exaggeration, I come hell or high water. I get these top three foods in my body every single day. And so do my sons. I make sure of it. That's how anti-cancer these foods are beyond breast cancer. Soy, cruciferous vegetables, leafy greens, and flax seeds. And then from there, we've got dietary fiber, berries, apples, tomatoes, mushrooms, especially the white button. Garlic, onions, leeks, shallots, chives, and scallions. That's the whole allium family. Turmeric and other spices, seaweed, and cacao. So, now today, we're getting our bonus six foods and super drinks that also have anti estrogenic properties in one, two, or three of the pathways that we've just outlined. So, here are four superfoods. Red grapes. This kind of goes along with the berry thing, but there's more resveratrol in the skin of red grapes uh, than other skins. And they have been independently shown to be quite potent anti estrogenic foods. So, red grapes, not white grapes, especially the ones, and I picked it out here in my picture with the seeds. Those are the ones with the high resveratrol content in the skin. Next up, whole grains. We're talking 100% whole wheat, rye barley, oats, wild rice, quinoa. You get the list. Buckwheat, couscous. <laughs> I could go on. Um, by the way, just I, I digress, but I'm 52. And so I was a, a high school product of the 80s. And let me tell you, that was the like no bread, pasta, rice or potatoes era. And it sticks with you when you learn something that young. So I was so liberated when we went whole food plant-based because I had been avoiding all of the grains. The whole, it, now I understand that it has to be a whole grain, but you still can easily find a whole wheat, hundred percent whole wheat spaghetti and all the rices and the pastas. I love that I get to eat not an excessive amount. If you remember my food plate from last time, it's like the 70, 30, 70 fruits and vegetables and 30% whole grains and proteins. But man, I've been enjoying getting all this. All the grains back in my life. All right. And another anti estrogen food is citrus. So, oranges, grapefruit, tangerines, lemon, lime. Every once in a while in my smoothie, I'll cut like a half a lemon and just put the whole thing in there, peel and all. So, those are three more anti estrogens. Now, I've got a fun one, a little known one. This is bonus superfood number four. It is anti inflammatory anti-estrogenic, obviously, because it's on this list. It's also anti-diabetic and has been shown in human studies to decrease insulin resistance, decrease lipid profiles, LDL, um, and triglycerides. It's anti atherogenic has been shown in human studies to decrease plaque buildup in the arteries leading to your numero uno killer heart disease. And in my favorite food study, Researchers recorded the total antioxidant content of 3,139 foods, everything from uh, cocoa, cola to coconuts. And they looked at more than food. those was food, beverages, spices, herbs, and supplements, everything that's in the world, basically. And at the very tippity-tippity top of that antioxidant power list, excuse me, scoffing at the blueberry. 124 times below it
1: was this fruit. Does anybody know what it is? Uh, let me describe that for the people who are listening. It, it What is on the screen right now either looks like uh, a really large grape or a really small, kind, I don't know, pumpkin, but 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 the core on it is like an emerald green compared to this lime green that's outside. This is kind of funky looking. And honestly, I am drawing a complete blank right now. <laughs> that's okay. This is the Indian gooseberry. <clears throat> okay. And I'm still getting a blank face.
0: I love it. Okay. So I'm teaching you something today. Uh, the Indian gooseberry, is really um, hard to find and not available. Like my friend texted me the other day at Trader Joe's. She's like, look, I found your, your gooseberry. And I'm like, yeah, that's a gooseberry. That's not the Indian gooseberry. Do not be fooled. This is the magic baby. And this is how you have to get it because you're not going to find it in the local grocery store, even the fancy Erewhons and Whole Foods out there. You're going to get it in its powder form. And it's called Amla. We happen to source an incredibly potent um, Amla, we call it Amla boss. And, uh, but you can get others. This is obviously organic and, uh, we have it at our pink Lotus store called elements plants on average carry 64 times the antioxidant power of meat, fish, eggs, and dairy. And we need to let that sink in for a second, because when you get in debates or discussions with carnivores, they're like, well, meat has antioxidants. And really? Like it does. Okay. But very few, 64 times. So let's do some math on what that means, practically speaking. So here, I'll give you a question, Chuck. <clears throat> gram per gram, in, in order to ingest the antioxidant content in one cup of blueberries that has a, uh, um, that weighs hundred grams, it has 57 calories and it has 0.3 grams of fat. Okay. That's a cup of blueberries. <clears throat> Sorry about this, people. <clears throat> um, in order to get that amount of antioxidant power from pizza slices, how many pizza slices do you think you have to eat?
1: Oh, all right. So let's see here. One cup of blueberries versus pizza slices. I'm gonna go <clears throat> with 36 slices of pizza, which is what well, maybe depending on how it's cut, four or five pizzas, something like that, whole pizzas. That was really close, 27.5 slices. And guess what? Instead
0: of eating 100 grams, you'll be eating 2,750 grams. Instead of eating 57 calories, you'll be eating 7,590 calories. And instead of ingesting 0.3 grams of fat, you'll be eating 323 grams of fat, largely saturated, I might add. Mm -hmm. That is a lot. Plant power, baby. Yes, ma'am. All right. <clears throat> so amla, tippity top of the um, of the antioxidant scale. And by the way, this, our omla boss is so potent that you literally need a quarter teaspoon to get all that power for, for like a daily dose.
1: So it's incredible. Do you just put that in like a, a tea or sprinkle it on top of some food or like how? I put how it in, you- my da- in my smoothie. Aha.
0: Uh-huh. Nice smoothie. And I'm going to talk about my smoothie coming up. Okay. So, <clears throat> allotonic. This is another secret weapon. Allotonic, it's anti inflammatory, anti estrogenic, anti diabetic, and boosts your cellular immunity. What is it exactly? So, aloe, the aloe vera plant, you know about it, right? Because you probably put aloe vera gel on a sunburn because it's extremely soothing and anti inflammatory. But have you ever thought about that? What if you ingested it? What if you drink it? Then that powerful anti inflammatory effect happens inside of your cells, squelching all of that inflammation, which is the playground for cancer and other illness. There's a a study in humans and diabetics who took one tablespoon twice a day, so two tablespoons a day of aloe. For just two weeks, these are diabetics. And in all of them, their blood sugar and their triglyceride levels went down. I mean, it's just really powerful stuff. So allotonic is ours uh, in the Pink Lotus Element Store. And what makes it ex- especially unique is that it's extracted without using heat. So you preserve all 200 plus essential nutrients in the aloe vera plant, and you're able to consume and liquid- liquefy the entire leaf. So when you see like aloe vera gel or other aloe drinks, they're usually diluted with water. It's definitely not the whole leaf. They're extracted with heat or alcohol and they're losing like the vast majority of the potency. So, um, yeah, this is just a really, uh, the, I wish that, uh, I wish pink Lotus has had the ability to do like really intensive randomized control trials because the, individualized studies on this allotonic from, from doctors. It's, it's pretty incredible what this has been able to do in terms of what's inflammatory in a body, like people with debilitating arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis with inflammatory bowel syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, autoimmune disorders, like Sjogren's and lupus, well, all of the things, Lyme disease, it has really squelched inflammation in people's bodies after we have some reviews even where people are like, they were debilitated, uh, you know, with irritable bowel syndrome. And after just drinking one or two capfuls an ounce a day, boom, it's all remarkably better. So there is, I think more, more magical research to be done behind what's really happening with aloe, because it does seem to be a near panacea, but, um, it has this, uh, mucopolysaccharides in particular, ace Manin, has been shown in studies to downregulate and destroy estrogen receptors on breast cancer cells. So there you have it. Bonus super drink. Oh, bonus super drink number two. I'm like, what am I trying to say? Um, <laughs> so, super drink number one was allotonics. Super drink number two is it water, tea, red wine, or gin and tonic?
1: I mean, just kind of on a hunch because water is great. I mean, it's fantastic for a lot of things, but it's not going to have other nutrients in there that say tea might have in it. And so that would be my, uh, you know, my guess here. Um, Red wine possible because of resveratrol, but I'm going to eliminate gin and tonic off of that list. Sorry, Snoop Dogg. Um, So (laughs) the tea, tea is my guess. Tea is my guess.
0: And ding, ding, ding. You, my friend, are oh so correct. And I loved hearing your rationale. It was like we were on a game show. You know, they, those contestants must be coached. Like, don't just go straight to your answer. Give us some of your thought process. Well, I would have said water, but and you're exactly right. Water, too many days on earth without it. And that's the end of you. So we definitely need water. And it would definitely be a common beverage enjoyed by people who are over 100 years old, the centenarians, I have no doubt drink water, but they probably don't drink much more water than the rest of the human population. So what is unique to the centenarians uh, in their consumption of beverages is that they almost universally consume tea. And of all the teas, the clear winner is green. And it's because of the high EGCG, epigallocatechin gallate antioxidant content in green tea that literally fights cancer and often wins. You're going to derive a number of health benefits, though, from all kinds of tea. Green, white, black, oolong, even herbal, which doesn't come from the powerful tea plant, Camellia sinensis. But as such, herbal does lack EGCG. So so does black and so does oolong. So brewing destroys the catechins like EGCG. So you really have to gulp down the green variety to beat cancer reliably let me show you what I mean. So FIP, <clears throat> actually you'd have to harken back to last year's exam room podcast. Cause I didn't talk about it this year, FIP, but this is, <clears throat> what do we can do with me? Mike? <clears throat> do you need to go get a sip of tea real quick? <laughs> oh, I have water instead. Okay. <clears throat> the second drink. There you go. All right. All right. So <clears throat> I just don't think water helps. I need to get that out of my throat, whatever it is. Okay. So FIP is this nasty heterocyclic amine, HCA, that forms whenever you cook beef, chicken, pork, and fish. It's the most abundant heterocyclic amine or carcinogenic compound found in the human diet, literally. And it's associated with developing breast, colon, um, and prostate cancers. So at levels of FIP that you would achieve by eating normal amounts of FIP food, like chicken normal breast cells go from being normal to precancerous to invasive cancer in a dose and exposure dependent manner meaning the more fip you drip on normal breast cells the more than they proliferate and migrate and invade when they change all right so now <clears throat> this graph is showing exactly that we've got cell migration invasion And oh, it's up here. I see what I did. Let me move my screen for you, peeps. This graph is proliferation: cells one becoming two, dividing and growing. Migration: moving themselves out of their present condition into the breast space, and invasion: getting into the blood vessels and lymphatics, and heading on out to the lung, liver, bone, and brain. As you drip FIP on normal breast cells in increasing concentrations as you can see from every bar it is a predictable step ladder of more fip more problems yes yes okay so now what happens to all of these biochemical and molecular changes if you drip two extracts of green tea on normal breast cells so now we're dripping on cell proliferation in increasing concentrations. We're dripping green tea on normal breast cells. Um, Nothing's happening. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good because I wouldn't like my green tea to transform breast cells into invasive cancers. I'm just proving that the baseline point that green tea in and of itself has no effect on the cell structure or migration. Now it happens if you drip FIP onto the cells that progressively changes them into invasive cancers, and then add on top of it, green tea extract. Presto changeo, the cells that were transformed into cancerous change by the FIP essentially revert to normal as if the FIP never hit the cells. So here we are, for example, with the, this is your baseline, Here's what happened when FIP was dripped, and boom, here's where they went back to when the green teas dripped, back to baseline. Here's here where we are when FIP hits, and boom, when the green tea hits, we're back to baseline. It's over and over. This is actually, now, this has six different things beyond the, the three, migration, proliferation, and invasion that I was saying. These are three more ca- capacities of cancer. So it's just pretty miraculous to me how readily and rapidly green tea reverses the damage of FIP, which was so powerful. Wow. I can hear all of you being like, wow, I want some green tea. You do because it inhibits free radicals. It has these polyphenol antioxidants that are flying around your bloodstream, warding off both cancer and diabetes, and it prevents and actually can reverse atherosclerosis. So, um, uh, okay. Yeah, this is cool. So let's talk cancer again. So we know that tea can help with glucose regulation and fight off plaque, but it also can halt the replication of cancer stem cells. Stem cells, cancerous stem cells, we think are the masterminds in breast cancer, meaning they're the reason why cancer recurs and why stage four happens. Cancer stem cells are very slowly dividing. And as such, chemo sails straight past them. You may not know this, but chemo is like a smart bomb and it's just looking for one thing. Hey, what's moving fast around here? Oh, your hair bald. Oh, your GI tract, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Oh, your fingernails grow fast. Let make them brittle and wonky. But you, cancer stem cell, are like a turtle in a shell. Like you're not going anywhere fast. So can't, chemo is not going to see it or kill the stem cell. Hmm. I wonder if green tea can. All right. So when a free radical oxidizes your DNA, it can cause a mutation, right? And that initiates the cancerous change, which then propagates into a detectable mass. So within 40 minutes of drinking green tea, your plasma peaks with antioxidant powers, like particularly the EGCG, and that can combat the oxidative damage that is done to the DNA. So it decreases the risk of cancer. So the circles here, they're in the control group after drinking water. So nothing's happening, but when you drink green tea, you've got this peak of antioxidants. That's exactly 40 minutes later. All right. So keep that in mind this meta-analysis looked at all the studies published on green tea and cancer and cardiovascular disease over a 40-year period between 1980 and 2020. So here's what they found. The squares in the bar, bars up here, those are the average results in the data of all the studies they looked at. And then the bars, the lines above and below the square, they're going to indicate the variation that's present in the data. So you can imagine the shorter the bar, the better the consensus among the studies at that plot point. Um, A longer bar, the studies are kind of farther off from each other in terms of benefit or no benefit. Overall, green tea consumption benefits human health. So total cancer death wasn't affected, but the incidence of individual cancers was. So on the whole... um, each type of cancer that's listed down here, and I'll read them for people who can't see it. Um, We're looking at bladder, breast, colorectal, esophageal, gastric, liver, lung, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, oral cancers, pancreatic, prostate, endometrial, that's uterine, ovarian, and then there's cardiovascular deaths and stroke. So we're looking at the effect of green tea on all of these disease processes. And although cancer mortality was not largely affected, Individual cancer incidence, which of course has its own ramifications of treatment and repercussions and misery brought into a life. Um, so, just staving off the cancer in the first place, whether or not you die from it, is a massive win for green tea. So, what you can see, and I've changed out, I've made green circles um, be a near 40% drop in incidence specifically because of the green tea and the red circles have about a 20% drop in incidence because of green tea so you get a 20% drop from green high versus low green tea consumption in breast oral and prostate cancers and a nearly 40% drop in esophageal liver lung non-hodgkin's lymphoma and ovarian cancers as well as cardiovascular mortality and stroke it's pretty phenomenal so green tea in breast cancer, this is a cool study. It was in Japanese women, 1160 breast cancer patients followed for nine years. And those drinking three cups of green tea a day in stage one breast cancer had a 57% drop in recurrence, stage two cancers, a 31% drop in recurrence. Finally, pro tip, a squeeze of a lemon into your green tea boosts the antioxidant EGCG absorption by fivefold. So absolutely always add a squeeze of lemon to your green tea. As you might expect, Pink Lotus Elements has sourced an organic, highly concentrated, potent, um, whole leaf matcha straight from Japan. And, um, It contains the entire leaf and a study on this particular green tea showed it to have 137 times the amount of antioxidants than regular routine off the shelf green tea. So, oh, by the way, some people are worried about green tea and caffeine. They just can't tolerate caffeine. So just for your knowledge, three cups of green tea a day, which I like people to have, has the caffeine equivalent of one cup of coffee and decaf. Decaffeinated green tea is actually fine, but it does have one-third the antioxidants of caffeinated green tea. But drinking some tea is way better than none. And it's also powerful if decaf is the only way you can consume drinks, that's fine. Do it. So at pinklotus.com/slash smoothie, you will find my smoothie recipe. And I'm going to show you something pretty awesome about it. But uh, think about this: cancer. Cancer only needs one of the more than 50 trillion cells in our bodies to make a mistake while dividing. And then a window of opportunity opens. You need an immune system that is highly functional and not distracted by other illness that's keeping it not watching what these rogue mutated cells might be doing. And you, so you better hope that that, If you just poured a bunch of radical scavenging antioxidants into your mouth and into your system to block that window of opportunity. Because if the only thing defending that little mutated cell is a chicken wing and white rice, (laughs) then that cancer cell is going to fly out that window much faster than the bird you sent after it. So one of the best things that you can consume on a daily basis would be something like my smoothie that check this out. We've got our list of 16 anti-estrogenic foods that we went through in this smoothie that you make it by yourself at home is soy. One and a half cups of soy milk is the base. Two big fistfuls of cruciferous veggies, like kale and spinach, two cupfuls of berries, which provides a ton of dietary fiber one or two tablespoons of ground flax seeds, a teaspoon of turmeric, a cap full of aloe tonic, a teaspoon of ancient matcha, and an eighth of a teaspoon of amla is all blended up into this super delicious drink. You could add in to hit four more of our top 18 anti-estrogenic foods. You could throw in some citrus, a little cacao for sweetness, an apple or half a red apple and some red grapes. I actually always have a bunch of frozen red grapes in the freezer for that purpose. And the only things missing out of 18 anti-estrogenic foods that are missing from this drink that you could just get down and throw in the way of that window between a cancerous cell change, which by the way, it's estimated, it's hard, you can't put an actual number on this. I looked for hours trying to figure it out, but there do seem to be like, a million DNA mutations a day that your body has to identify, fix, or throw away. So how awesome to just down this smoothie and put that (laughs) into the system for the day, uh, fighting off all those DNA mismatches and breaks. The only five things missing are tomatoes, mushrooms, garlic, seaweed, and whole grains, which sounds like a yummy lunch or dinner coming your way. And I think it'd be kind of gross to put those in the smoothie, but you could. So that's just a little tip on, cause a lot of people get overwhelmed. Like, I really love that idea of all these amazing foods, but that's like, it would take me all day, every day to be like checking off my checklist. Like, all right, I got that part. I got the flax in my oatmeal. Ooh, I got the turmeric. I put it on my rice at lunch. Oh, you know what I mean? Like, so I just drink the smoothie and I don't have to worry about it so much. And then I eat whole food plant-based all day anyway. So I'm sure I'm just getting more awesomeness.
1: Uh, how many, how many uh, smoothies are we talking to? I mean, like, so that to me seems like at least two of those, I guess, 12 ounce glasses that are up on the screen right now. Um, so it's, this is going to be a pretty substantial smoothie, right?
0: It's yeah, you can sip it kind of like over an hour or so in the morning. It it's in the um, let's beat breast cancer campaign, free e cookbook that you get when you sign up at let's beat breast Um And it's on the website, but it has Oh, I don't want to misspeak, but it's not as caloric as you think. It's somewhere hovering around 380 calories. um, And it's like, it makes about 28 ounces.
1: Nice. Nice. Love that.
0: All right. So part of the let's beat breast cancer campaign, um, it's encourages you to take a challenge with us to eat a whole food plant-based diet, limiting uh, meat, dairy, eggs, processed foods, saturated fat, simple sugars, and refined grains. We encourage you to exercise and maintain ideal body weight. And we discourage you from drinking alcohol. So let's talk a little bit about why. And for my drinkers out there, maybe you're looking for a little workaround, a little hope, maybe just on like, you know, birthday and holidays and days out with friends. Um, all right. So what's happening with alcohol? It's increasing estrogen levels. That's like the villain of today's discussion, is it not? So that's a bad thing. It forms acetaldehyde, which is the principal and most toxic metabolite of alcohol, which disrupts DNA synthesis and repair. And it impairs, therefore, immune function, immune cells being the entire thing that identifies and destroys cancer cells in your body. So we don't want that impaired. And it inactivates folic acid or folate from becoming its activated form in your body, which is called methylfolate. Methylfolate babysits the DNA as it divides. It kind of fixes it if it goes awry or throws it out if it's unfixable. And so you really need your methylfolate, the activated form of folic acid from vitamins, folate from your leafy greens to be present and functional. So wait a minute, doc. Doesn't alcohol prevent heart attacks? And haven't you said somewhere along the way that we're seven times more likely to die of a heart attack than you are breast cancer? Uh, Yeah. So we've all seen the headlines about studies associating drinking with heart health, but Houston, I think we found a problem here. It's called the J curve. So there are hundreds of studies published uh, from the 1990s and the early 2000s that show the classic J-shaped curve when it comes to drinking and death from heart disease, cancer, and all cause. The J-shape means that relative to a non-drinker, let's just go through this uh, graph verbally, especially for those who are just listening to audio right now, I want you to know that along the bottom of this graph are the number of alcoholic drinks someone is consuming per day from zero on to six or more. And then on the uh, left-sided vertical, we've got all-cause mortality. So our null person drinks nothing and is the 1.0 cause mortality. If you go below 1.0, so zero point something, that means you're exerting a protective effect. If you go above 1.0, that means you're exerting a cancerous effect or an all cause mortality effect. So if you, quick statistics lesson, 1.0 is our person who drinks nothing. So this is, everything after that is relative to that person who drinks nothing. If it's 0.8, that's a 20% protective effect. If it's 1.2, that's a 20% incremental deleterious or cancer causing effect. Okay. Did I make that clear? Chuck, pretty good?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay.
0: All right. So what, So what's happening with the J curve is the tip of the J, um, the loopity tip, that's at one and the null person who doesn't drink at all. So what happens when you drink one drink a day or two drinks a day or three drinks a day? And I drew this curve like a hand drew it. So it's not quite right. Just listen to what I'm saying and don't stare at the curve too much with the numbers on the bottom because I'll tell you right now. So the J-shape means that relative to a non-drinker, those who drink moderately, meaning one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men, Although, by the way, I scanned most of these in the European studies, can have you tripling those daily numbers. But anyway, what we see is that the moderate drinkers, however defined, actually have less all cause mortality, meaning just dying from any reason whatsoever, than those who don't drink at all. But then on the heavy drinking side of our uh, curve, the mortality bumps up much higher than the non drinker. Hmm. So this led to, as one might suspect much jubilation amongst drinkers um, and and amongst the alcohol industry, so it's really hard to follow the money um, when it comes to who funded studies because there's loopholes in needing to report conflicts of interest, but regardless of why they did it, maybe all of those studies conveniently classified former drinkers as if they never touched the stuff aha so. If you include in the abstainers, all those who used to drink heavily and quit because they're like super sick um, and all those who quit because like they have cancer or heart disease and drinking makes them feel worse. Now, all of a sudden, the abstainers group has rather poor health, right? So it actually makes the moderate drinkers one or two glasses a day look super fit. So that study came out in 2017 that looks at exactly that and um, it reclassified all of those non-drinkers and the, well, I I booked too soon. Hold on. I have another slide. I forgot about it. Uh, So this revamped meta-analysis included 87 studies that had all replicated the classic J-shaped curve. Okay, so they're all J-shaped curvers. And now this is representing nearly 4 million people and 370,000 deaths. They found that 65 of the 87 studies included former drinkers in the abstainer group. And then another nine studies included current occasional drinkers in the abstainer group. For a total of 74 out of 87 studies, meaning 85% of the so-called abstainers were not, in fact, never drinkers. So when you correct the bias in the reference group, the J-curve vanishes and it's completely replaced by what you might expect, which is a linear curve, meaning the more you drink, the higher your risk. And the person with the least risk when it comes to alcohol is the person who doesn't drink any. Hmm. But they did an analysis adding back the occasional drinker into the reference group. That's less than one drink a month, by the way. But if you do that, there's no change, but there's no protection either. Hmm. Moderate drinking in moderation is okay, maybe. I know some of you are like, okay, Dr. Buzzkill. Uh, Doesn't that mean, here's my super clever person. They're like, wait a minute. 15% of the studies then legit found a protective effect, right? (laughs) Because only 85% of the studies were contaminated. Okay, maybe. But I'm going to put on my doctor hat, my Buzzkill hat, and say that more studies associate bad over good, implicating alcohol for causing high blood pressure, obesity, stroke, cancers of the mouth, throat, esophagus, colon, liver, and breast, cirrhosis, depression, suicide, and accidents, to name a few negatives of drinking. But uh, so if you don't drink, uh, don't start. But I'm going to put on like a cool, cooler girlfriend hat for a second and ask along with you, based on the science, is there any room for some sort of moderation here? All right, well, let's back up and talk about what's a drink. I'm going to focus on breasts because uh, that's what I do. And I like to stay within my main jam. So the U.S. defines one drink as 14 grams of alcohol. What's that? 12 ounces of beer equals five ounces of wine equals 1.5 ounces of hard liquor. The World Cancer Research Fund, along with the American Institute for Cancer Research, publishes its landmark consensus data in the science of um, cancer prevention, like every 10 years or so. So the latest breast cancer and alcohol risk data is what I'm quoting here. For those who drink, as it pertains to breast cancer, alcohol and breast cancer risk, those who drink a half a drink a day, increase their breast cancer risk by 5%. A drink a day, 10% two drinks a day, 30%, three drinks a day, 40% increase. So the increase in risk in all of these studies was almost exclusively in estrogen receptor positive cancers, by the way, and these elevations in risk spanned all types of alcohol, except maybe one. Aha. Okay. No, we're talking maybe there's a workaround of sorts. What about red wine? Red wine seems to have some fairly impressive redemptive qualities, and many studies show an actual decrease in all cancers relative to teetotalers, exclusively for red wine. But J curve problem, remember? So, what do we know? This 2020 paper details how how um, you can. See that the flavonoid and non flavonoid compounds in red wine and the phenolic compounds in their metabolites affect all of these cell functions cancer cell differentiation, cell growth inhibition, metastases inhibition, apoptosis, cancer cell suicide, induction and modulation of estrogen signaling such that it's interfering with estrogen driving the breast cancer division rate. So naturally occurring aromatase inhibitors. Now we're back to that enzyme in the fat that's converting steroids to estrogen. There are aromatase inhibitors that naturally exist in grapes and grape juice and grapeseed extract and in red wine. So again, I'm not saying to start drinking red wine for these properties. If you don't just chomp on some red grapes, okay? Um, You do not need to start drinking to get all of these benefits. You don't get any of it from white grapes or white wine. Can you believe that cancer cells actually use aromatase to create their own estrogen so they can fuel themselves? They actually have it in like a little suitcase where they're walking around. They've got their own aromatase packed. They don't even need yours or your, your own fat. The breast fat in your breast has the aroma taste too. Like it's those sinister
1: little beasts. I mean, that is the- really advanced. Like they right? are trying to be self-sustaining little sons of guns. Indeed they are. And that's
0: why That's why every time you lift fork to mouth, every time you decide what to do and not do right now, what to think and not think, even what to say and not say, as it pertains to the way the mind body connection works, it all matters to create this milieu, this environment inside of your body that is constantly screaming out anti-cancer, anti-plaque, anti-obesity because these cells i don't know they're just they're on a mission to survive they're programmed to survive at all means necessary so anyway the aromatase inhibit in inhibiting the aromatase inhibiting properties in our red wine in our red wine i mean uh, can inactivate that enzyme and it takes away the cells abilities to autofuel so foiled This 2020 paper explains um, how your new favorite alcoholic choice uh, just might save your life. So, the flavonoids and polyphenols that we just mentioned that are in red wine, and al- along with the EGCG in green tea, and our genocine and scene in soy, the resveratrol in the red wine, in the quercetin, um, that's in onions, kale, cherry tomatoes, broccoli, blueberries. Uh, apples. Those are all excellent. Quercetin uh, or Corston? I think it's Quercetin. I'm going to go with that pronunciation. I've never actually looked it up how to say Quercetin. Do you know? I'm going to go with uh, quercetin,
1: um, quercetin. Quercetin. I'm going to look quercetin it up. You keep talking. Right, but yeah.
0: Anyway, remember it's the skin where the abundance of phytochemicals live. So and whenever possible, never peel. Uh, And like with onions, peel minimally so that the outermost layer that is edible is what you're eating. Uh, And like with everything, go with the color. So anyway, red onions are better than yellow. Onions are better than white, but please just eat the rainbow. I don't get caught up in the color business because it's already awesome. It's all plant food. So we know that uh, resveratrol from the skin of red grapes, again, you can just eat the grapes, inhibits all three requirements for cancer to form, initiation, promotion, and progression. So that's what's happening here. And the ultimate end in our graph is that there's a decrease from consuming all of these chemicals in their food form. There's a decrease in breast cancer proliferation and migration. Foiled again. Here's secret weapon number two. If you choose to drink, consume occasionally, choose red wine, and then let's talk about methylfolate. And where do you get it? You get it inside your own body. There's an enzyme that sounds like a bad word called MTHFR that stands for methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase. And it's taking, as I said to you before, the folate via food or the folic acid via vitamins and churning it into its activated form, L5-methylfolate, which, as I mentioned already, babysits the DNA as it divides. So what happens is alcohol decreases the folate absorption from your intestines, and it increases excretion in the kidneys and it interferes with the necessary conversion of methylfolate uh, of uh, folate into its methylfolate helpful form. So it's t- so just by drinking, you're decreasing the front loading that needs to get converted and you're stopping the ability to convert into what you're really needing here, which is methylfolate that fixes DNA mutations. So, oh yeah, I want you to know. 30 to 50% of people just genetically like de novo born this way have a suboptimal MTHFR enzyme. So those people turns out have a slightly increased risk of breast cancer, but it's all mitigated just by consuming leafy greens for them. Some people, this thing doesn't work and that's been shown in the literature for them. They have like a 67% increase in breast cancer. Just just explaining why this conversion thing really matters. You need your methylfolate. And so if you're one of these slow enzyme workers, 30 to 50% of people are, and then you drink, boom, you knock that thing out for the day. It'll be back again tomorrow, but today, not so much. The nurse's health study, um, was a long-term study. It looked like 89,000 women. And then they pulled out just the drinkers from this study. And among those who all drank one or more alcoholic drinks a day, supplementing with 600 micrograms a day of folate led to 89% less breast cancer versus those who had less folate. So it does seem to be that among the things that alcohol does in terms of increasing estrogen, impairing the immune system, increasing acetaldehyde, that, this this uh, cascade between folate and methylfolate is incredibly important because it can be mitigated by more folate. Um, so you could just consume. When you choose to drink, maybe you want to consume a vitamin form of methylfolate. Cosmo Companion is one that we formulated because it also has botanicals that su- support and protect your liver cells and it supports glucose metabolism. And it also has methylfolate in its active form, B6 and B12. Those three things combine inside your body to form glutathione, which is the most powerful antioxidant that exists. So that's your workaround. If you're going to have an occasional drink, choose red wine and maybe take a methylfolate supplement. To learn all sorts of extra dietary tricks and much, much more, I'd love to see you guys at my summit. It's at the gorgeous oceanfront resort, Terranea in Southern California, October 16, 17 this year, but we are going to hold it every year and in multiple cities. Um, so check my website out for where it may be coming next. And if you can't make it in person, please join the virtual summit for those, um, who are watching this in October, 2021 until November 15th, there are coupon codes available LBBC standing for let's beat breast cancer LBBC 10 for 10% 10 off the live summit and LBBC 20 for 20% off the virtual with additional proceeds going as a donation to our favorite organization, PCRM. If you want to read about all the things I'm talking about, I've got some, Well, I only have one book. It's just in paperback and hardback. And please join my pinklotus.com slash power up. The power up community is completely free. Many tens of thousands of women are already on there wanting to connect with you. It's bursting with ways to have panel discussions with others. You can educate yourself, fundraise and learn all sorts of awesome recipes and much more. And do visit that pink Lotus element store where we've, Put together an online women's health and breast cancer store that contains all of these very uniquely formatted, intelligently designed supplements and other items that address the needs of women before, during, and after a breast cancer diagnosis. And finally, join the Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign. Take our challenge to eat whole foods, exercise more, drink less or not at all, and maintain a healthy body weight.
1: LBBC. It's my favorite campaign of the year. You, you are chock full of information. I love when you're, what strikes me is one, your passion in talking about this, but two, your ability to really take what can be very complicated science and boil it down so that all of us who haven't spent years in medical school, all of us can still understand and digest this information. So that is a rare talent and my hat is off to you. Thank you, and what you have nice hair with your hat off. I appreciate that Thank you, thank you. um housekeeping notes here uh follow up I'm wondering one of the anti estrogenic foods you were talking about closer to the top of the presentation were citrus foods, and uh, is any one more beneficial than another?
0: uh the limonene is one of the most powerful compounds that's coming out of the citrus fruit family, and even though it says. Limonene, you would think that it's most common in a lime or a lemon, but it's in oranges. Wow. Yes. So go
1: for the orange. And I think this will set us up great for the next show, uh, which we will be talking about obesity and exercise and the correlation there with breast cancer. But I think when people see studies like you were talking about, where you drink green tea, it lowers your risk of cancer substantially. I think people think then, well, if I drink five cups of green tea a day, that's going to completely erase any damage that I do by going through the drive-through every day. And is it possible to out-drink that damage with green tea?
0: Oh, it's, it's absolutely possible because while each of these foods is powerful in its own way and can have multiple avenues through which it decreases cancer's ability to form and grow... It's not, not a single food can be ingested as a panacea and cancer, as we discussed today is super sinister. It has all sorts of alternate pathways to take. If you decide to block this route, it's like, all right, I'll just go this way then. And that green tea, for example, had no idea that it was going to take this avenue. So it's not knocking out all of the, very creative ways cancer has to, um, it, it literally it can upregulate its gene function. If you downregulate something else, it's just going to be like, all right, digging my estrogen away, boom, I'm going to put up some growth factor receptors over here. Like, so you have to be, I don't want to create a fear-based initiative, but you just want to be on your toes. Like the burger's never going to help you.
1: Never keep that in mind people the burger will never help you that should be on a (laughs) t-shirt i feel like i've I've learned so much here today so i can't wait to dive in to do a little bit more next time and uh dr funk as always thank you so very much for your time you're so generous and and wise and just there's so many people who are getting so much out of this so my hat is off to you thank you so much We still have one more show to go in our Let's Be Breast Cancer series, and that will be out two episodes from now. And we're gonna be wrapping everything up with a look at how your weight could be affecting your risk of breast cancer. Sadly, obesity, it turns out, significantly increases your chances of being diagnosed with breast cancer. And now with three out of every four adults in the U.S. being overweight and four out of ten having obesity, there is a lot of good that can come from this final episode with Dr. Funk. We may even save a life. And that is what we love to do here on The Exam Room. So let's talk now with a breast cancer survivor her own life saved by early detection and a resolve to beat this disease. Her will to live was stronger than steel because she had two very special reasons to fight as hard as she possibly could. Her son and her nephew, whom she was raising as her own after her sister passed from breast cancer just years earlier. Lorraine Fox an inspiration to women around the world, and just one remarkable human being. And what makes Miss Fox's story even more unique is that her son De'Aaron happens to be a star in the NBA, shining on the court with the Sacramento Kings. And together now, through the whole Fox Family Foundation, they are raising awareness for breast cancer and helping women in their community to lead healthier lives. Now, You're about to hear just how strong of a person Miss Fox is, how she plowed through treatment, kept working the entire time, and was still there for her children every step of the way. And in time, De'Aaron became such an advocate with his platform. He so loved his mother that the night that he fulfilled his lifelong dream of hearing his name called in the NBA draft, that when he walked across the stage to greet the commissioner that night, he flashed a smile, turned to the cameras, and opened up his jacket and unveiled a touching tribute to his mother. For that jacket that he opened was lined with Pink Ribbons. Thank you so very much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here, and you are a survivor now, 21 years in remission, is that correct?
2: 21 years, 21 years in March of this year.
1: Your story, as we were talking before we started recording here, is just... It's tragic. It's inspirational. It's hopeful. It's so much. And I'm so glad that you're here today to talk about it. Um, so let's start from the beginning. Your sister was diagnosed sadly with breast cancer. Uh, and she passed away three years before you received the diagnosis. Was there anyone else in your family who had had breast cancer to that point?
2: To that point, no. Uh, She was the only one that uh, we knew of that had had breast cancer. Uh, You know, older family members like grandmother or great aunts and those, you know, they passed away, but we didn't know it was just natural causes. So we didn't know. So breast cancer was not uh, really prevalent in my family or any talked about until my sister was diagnosed
1: what do you remember about when she was diagnosed and those initial conversations that the two of you had?
2: Well, initially um, she was diagnosed. She was 28 years old. Uh, we were living mm. in Southern California at that time. It was just uh, me and her as far as close family members that lived in that area. And so I didn't know of her diagnosis until she was at the hospital having surgery and her friend called me at work and told me that she was in the hospital having surgery and that she was diagnosed with breast cancer. So um, you can imagine the shock and surprise for me being that um, she was so young. And so I did, I went to the hospital after work that evening and, you know, kind of talk with her to find out, you know, what's going on, you know, when did she find out, you know, all the, you know, pertinent information that because we hadn't, you know, we would visit each other and, you know, hang out together, do different dinners and stuff, but she never said anything as far as her having breast cancer. So I actually found out through a friend of hers. And, you know, once I found out and I, you know, visited her in the hospital, we just kind of, um, Went through the process together. She had uh, other friends that she worked with in the area that would um, go with her to her treatments and stuff. And we would go to a doctor's appointments and and that kind of stuff just to kind of, you know, make sure that she, you know, was getting her treatments and everything was going well. And she went into um, remission. um, Probably She went through different uh, treatments the radiation the chemo the, the surgery first and then the chemo I think she had uh six rounds of chemo and then she had uh radiation and so after that she went into remission and you know she was still having her follow-ups with her oncologist every year which I hadn't ne- I didn't even know what oncologist was until the breast cancer. Like she like my cancer she was like oncologist I'm like well, what's the oncologist? What are you talking about? She said, that's my cancer doctor. I'm like, oh, okay. Cause I, I didn't know what cancer doctors was called, but yeah. So I learned that through her process. And like I said, after her treatment and everything was over, she went into remission. I would say that she was in remission for probably uh, about a year and a half, I would say. And then she started having leg pains and she, when she went to the doctor for the leg pains, it wasn't her cancer doctor that she went to. She went to a regular general practitioner. Well, the general practitioner didn't know her history. So they prescribed her um, muscle relaxers because um, the job that she was working was um, in the hospital environment. So she or in convalescent homes, So she was, you know, up on her feet a lot and she would work a lot of double shifts and this, that, and the other. And so she started having leg pains. And when she, you know, went to get it checked out, the doctor just thought it was muscle spasms. So they gave her medicine for muscle spasms. And I'm not really sure how long after, before. She went with a friend of hers, a friend of hers went to the doctor with her because the medicine that they was giving her for muscle spasm wasn't working, wasn't making the pain go away. And the friend of hers told the doctor she had breast cancer. She had breast cancer. And then they started looking into her situation further. And that's when they discovered that the cancer had returned. It had metastasized and it had went into her bones.
1: Mm. That must have been just so devastating to hear, given the fact that she had been in remission and then has to go right back into that fight. Um, how long did that battle last?
2: Um, I think that battle lasts probably... So she was initially diagnosed at 28, and she passed at 33. So from the initial diagnosis, 28, it was a, it was a four year battle, kind of. You would, I would I would say it was about a four year battle, and at that time she had um, my nephew was turning one when she was diagnosed the first time. And when she passed, he was uh, not quite five yet. He wasn't quite five yet when she passed.
1: And you wound up taking your nephew in and and raising him pretty much as your son, correct?
2: Correct. Um, She passed in January of 1997. And so I, uh, she had, before she passed, a couple of months before she passed, she uh wrote out i guess you would call it like a living wheel or something asking that uh myself and my husband would raise her son, and so you know that was obvious that we were gonna you know raise him because um she didn't uh there was no other family member in the area, and my nephew had uh spent a lot of time with us anyway, so he he knew us so it was um you know, it was a fairly easy transition as far as him coming to live with us.
1: But then flash forward three years later and you still being a young woman find a lump in your breast. What do you remember about the moment that you felt that? What thoughts went through your mind? Well,
2: initially, even, even before I found the lump. So, between the time that my sister passed and me finding a lump, um I had my initial my first initial mammogram uh probably like a couple of years before that because my sister uh, because of my sister, I guess they would call that the history because history would have to start somewhere, so being that she was so young when she was diagnosed. Uh, my um, OBGYN suggested that I get my baseline mammogram. And normally you don't, you know, get your baseline mammogram until you're 40. And I was, um, I, I guess I would say I was 31, 32 when I got the baseline mammogram so that, you know, we would have uh, an initial image to, um, I guess, take reference from so uh fast forwarding to um next uh 2000 um i i didn't normally do the um self exams every month and um this month i just happened to did it and i found a a lump in my breast and i was like well you know in a couple of days, I'll keep checking. And in a couple of days, if it's still there, then I'll go get it checked. And a couple of days, the lump was still there. So I made an appointment with my um, OBGYN. And uh, we went in, we had the exam. And then she ordered a mammogram. Well, the mammogram came back showing that it was a mass, but it was, um, it was solid. So because it was solid, they wanted to do an ultrasound. And so when I went to do the ultrasound, again, the ultrasound came back that it was a solid mass, but they couldn't really tell if it was cancer or not. So after the ultrasound, then I went to a surgeon and they did a biopsy. Um, they did the biopsy on a Friday, I traveled to, I was living in in New Orleans at that time, and I traveled to Houston for, I had my biopsy that Friday, and then I traveled to Houston for work that Sunday, and I think that um, Tuesday, Tuesday or Wednesday morning while I was at work is when my doctor called me and told me that they had got the results back from my biopsy and that it was breast cancer. And, um, I had one of my coworkers at that time, um, you know, come outside with me while I took the phone call. And she knew that I had, you know, lost my sister from, from breast cancer. So she was with me as I took the call and, um, you know, that the first initial, um, Thing when you're diagnosed with cancer, you know, you're thinking the worst, like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? And, um, I, I cried for mm, a couple of minutes and then I realized that, well, I have a five-year-old. No, he was, uh, I have a three-year-old, which was De'Aaron because he was born in 97. This was in 2000. I have a three-year-old and Quentin would have been uh of almost eight because he would I think he would have been eight coming that June and this was in March. So it was like I have two young boys that I have to be around for and Quentin had already lost one mom and I was not going to let him lose another one. So basically the fight had to start. So as soon as I got back from My work trip in Houston, as soon as I got back to New Orleans, I set the appointment with the uh, surgeon so they can do the surgery because the initial was just the biopsy. And so we went back in and we did a lumpectomy. They took out the mask. They took out uh, tissues around the mask and they took out some lymph nodes. And so um, waited for the results from that and it turned out that the cancer was non-invasive. It hadn't got outside of the breast wall. My lymph nodes was clear, so that was a a good sign. And it was diagnosed as stage one non-invasive carcinoma. And so, you know, after I got, you know, that, and that, you know, it was good news that we caught it early. And so, initially, my surgeon was telling me i just going to have radiation so i was like okay you know I'm, I'm i'm okay with radiation well when he sent me to the radiologist and the radiologist said well since you're so young and if you were my spouse i would want you to do chemo because it could be, even though your margins are clear and we didn't find, we got we think we got all the cancer, but because of your age, we think that it would be better if you did chemo before radiation because it could be some micro cells floating around. And mm-hmm. I think I was more upset about having to do chemo than I was of having breast cancer. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But let me, let me jump in here and ask you, you know, there were a number of tests there that you were waiting on results from, and that time while you were waiting must have seemed like it was an eternity. Was that a difficult thing for you waiting to get those answers? Waiting for results
2: was the longest three days of my life Mm.
1: because
2: like every time the phone ring, you jump. Or you check your email and you haven't gotten anything yet. And so you don't sleep, you barely eat because you just like like and, and I mean you can't rush the results because they have to grow through some um petri dish or however they was checking to see if there was any cancer cells in there. But it was that's a hard wait, And if, you know, anybody uh, who tell me that they had a mammogram, it was abnormal, uh, they gotta go back in for such and such or whatever. And I would tell them, I'm not even gonna front. I'm not gonna lie to you. That's a hard way. I'm not gonna tell you not to worry because then that would I would be hypocritical telling you not to worry when I worry. So I'm just gonna, you know, be if you need if you want to talk, I'm here to talk. But I'm not gonna tell you don't worry about it because I I worried about it so.
1: Yeah, I, w- I would imagine it's really easy to go to a dark place during that time. I mean, your mind is just going to naturally wander there.
2: Yeah, the the waiting is hard. It's it, that's a hard waiting. It's like I want to know right now. Like what do you got right now?
1: Uh, You don't strike me as the kind of person with this that has a great deal of patience because, you know, you said that you cried for a few minutes and then basically strapped on your gloves and it was ready to go to war with this thing, you know, start throwing jabs at the cancer and, and get out in front of it. Yes.
2: I, 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 I I did not, I have no patience for
1: anything basically, but this
2: is like, no, I don't want to, because, you know, I've heard stories where people would find a lump and then they ignore it for years. And I'm like, how do you ignore that for years? I don't understand. Mm. Like, and then turns out it's a stage three. Mm. Well, what were you doing in five years that you ignore a lump in your breast? I don't get it. I, I don't get that. I, yeah, as soon as I find something, because you gotta be your own advocate. So you gotta know your body better than anybody else.
1: Well, let's talk about now the the chemo. You said you were more upset about having to go through that than you were the actual breast cancer diagnosis. How did that process turn out for you? Well, um, after my, because, you know, okay, so with chemo, you know, the first thing they,
2: one of the side effects is you're going to lose your hair. And, you know, with my hair, it's like, uh, oh my God, no, oh my God. So that was like, and I mean, I, I knew that you could lose your hair from chemo because I saw my sister go through chemo and lose her hair. So, and I've seen other, you know, people doing uh, cancer treatments, you know, you know, losing their hair. But that was I, I that was hard for me. So, in order for me to, I guess, get through it or get take control of the situation after my first chemo treatment. I was like, well, my hair didn't fall out. So I was like, okay. But then I was talking to um, other uh, patients who had went through and they said, no, it doesn't usually fall out on your first treatment. I'm like, oh, so it's, <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, so it's still a possibility that it's coming out. And so instead of me waiting for the chemo to take my hair out, I went to the barbershop and I had them to cut it off. I, I wanted to take control of my I wanted to be
1: in control of my destiny, so I'm
2: like, okay, well, I'm just gonna cut it off. I'll get it cut off, and then I won't have to wait for it to fall out.
1: How did the treatment progress for you? Um, were you able to tolerate it fairly well? Some some women seem to do better than others. How was the experience for you?
2: For me, um, the radi- the chemo um, we initially were was gonna have to do six chemo rounds, but it turned out I only needed to do. Four, which was great. Um, I would go in because this was, you know, back 20 years ago when the treatments was a little different and they had this one medicine cause I would have to go in and do two medicines in the facility. And in one medicine, they would, uh, use a fanny pack, put the medicine in this uh, bag And you would go home with it and it would run all night or run 24 hours. And then you go back the next day and get it taken off. Well, um, this medicine, I don't know the name of the medicine, but they called it the red devil. To me, it smelled like blood. Like, so you're smelling blood as this medicine is going through your system for 24 hours. um, I don't think I had as many side effects from the chemo as a lot of people do. I think I tolerated it pretty well. Um, After my, when I would go get my treatments and then the next day I would go back and they would take the, the red devil would have ran its course. And then a friend of mine, we would go out to uh, lunch and we would go to a a buffet and eat all I can eat because in a couple of days, I'm not going to be able to taste my food. And so we would do that after each, after each treatment doing, um, doing chemo. The only time I was off work is when I was actually at my chemo appointment. So I was still able to, like, I would go, I think like midday and then on a Thursday. And then that Friday I was off and then they would, I would go and they would take the Because the medicine had to run Thursday night all the way through Friday midday. I would go back, have it taken off, and then I would go to lunch from there. So I didn't really, I wasn't like down where I couldn't go to work. So the only time I was actually off of work was actually doing the treatment. So it was like from Thursday midday, and then I was off on Friday and i go back to work on Monday.
1: So you, uh, you do your four rounds of chemo and then you move on to the radiation, correct?
2: And then I moved on to the radiation and I had to do, um, 30 rounds of radiation. Um, and the radiation was really like, I went to work every day. I go in, I would go in an hour early so that I would leave an hour early, go get my radiation treatment and then go home. So I never missed a day of work doing radiation while I was doing my radiation treatment. Cause I was living in right outside of New Orleans, you know, New Orleans, um, August, September hurricane season. <laughs> uh-huh. so, so I had to, I, I um, I was getting toward the end of my radiation and we had to evacuate for a hurricane. I don't know what hurricane it was. It seemed like it was evacuating all the time. So I ended up having to postpone um, toward the end to evacuate and then, you know, came back, finished it up. But yeah, so it was, you know, that was my only stoppage in my treatment from March, the initial finding the lump in my breast all the way through September. That was the only stoppage was when we had to evacuate for the hurricane.
1: That is a lot to pack into just six months. The biopsy, the waiting for the results, the chemo, the radiation, all of that in just a six month span to even try to comprehend that to me is just dizzying. Um, My goodness. Um, But I, I guess, you know, your key here was to just keep moving forward and keep fighting. Don't stop until
2: it's done. And after, after your treatment is done, and so you're now you're seeing your oncologist maybe every three months getting scans, getting, um, just checking you and just, you know, following up. You make sure that everything is fine. Everything's fine. So um, anytime I would find a lump or something unusual, I'm going, I go get it checked. Cause, um, after my treatment and everything was done and I'm seeing my oncologist, um, every three months I found a, it was a a knot on the back of my neck and, you know, me being impatient, I'm like, okay, no, this ain't normal. This didn't used to be here. I'm going to check it out. And I mean, I went and they, um, they checked it out and we end up uh, surgically removing it and it was it, was, uh, it wasn't was cancer or anything but just for my peace of mind and I knew that that was not normal it wasn't there before you know I had to go get it checked out so anytime I would find anything unusual on me I I'd go check it out and I think when I was doing, when I was in cancer treatment is when I felt more I guess at peace about cancer because if I'm in treatment I can't ha- I can't have cancer. You see what I'm saying?
1: Right, right. Right. If I'm if
2: I'm in the treatment, I'm in the process, then the cancer got to be at bay because otherwise I wouldn't be in treatment. So, I kind of looked at it that way as long as I'm in treatment, I'm cancer free.
1: Now, let me ask you about when the doctors told you that you were in remission. I would imagine that that conversation was a whole heck of a lot different than the day you were told um, that you had breast cancer. What was the different emotions that you were feeling that day? <sighs> well,
2: actually, um, even before even before I went, started the treatment part after the surgery, and the surgeon and and the um after the, they got the results back from the by the um lumpectomy where they took out all the cancer and they tested the lymph nodes when when I got the results back that the lymph node was clean and my margins was clean, I had already started to feel better until they told me I had to have chemo. <laughs> <laughs> But you go through, um, it's a five-year process before they would uh, really say that you are in remission or that you are clear. You go through a five-year process. So within that five years, uh, the first, um, I want to say the first couple of years, I know I was seeing my oncologist every three months. And then after a while, it went to twice a year and then it went to once a year. And then when I moved from uh, New Orleans to Houston, because I was um, I moved to Houston in 2003. Yes, 2003. So I was a little nervous about moving because I'm like, okay, well, now I got up. Find a, a new doctor and this, that, and the other. So my oncologist in, in from New Orleans was like, uh, "Houston got the best cancer facility in the country. You'll be fine."
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, like, you know, I got to and I, you know, I found a oncologist, and even after I was still seeing her once a year until I was probably ten years. But I was still seeing her once a year, and she was like, "You know, you don't have to see me anymore." But I'm like, "But I like to see you." So.
1: <laughs> Keep bringing that good news. Yeah, you're
2: covered. You're you're under my instruments. You're okay. It's okay.
1: So,
2: <laughs> but eventually, it was like, "Okay, I don't have to come and see you no more." But I still, you know, I still get my my mammograms every year.
1: And this story today is 100% about you. And we've mentioned your son, uh, who is quite famous, as a matter of fact, De'Aaron Fox, (laughs) NBA star, just bawling out for the Sacramento Kings. Had a heck of a game last night as we record this, by the way. Um, (laughs) So the night that he is drafted, uh, I believe he surprises you. And in the lining of his coat that night was a plethora of pink breast cancer ribbons. I would imagine as a parent, you must have been more proud of him repping you that way than to see him walk across the stage and enter his career as an NBA player.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. So um before before that came about, um you know, me, him, and my nephew was uh, my nephew's son, we were, you know, just kind of talking about, you know, the drafts and what do you want in your lining and because we know you know from watching previous drafts we've seen other players have different things that you know they were um you know proud of or whatever and in the lining of their jackets so we hadn't like specifically said this is exactly what i'm gonna do it was just conversations that we were having and so i hadn't seen i mean like we was at the draft all week. I had never I hadn't seen what he was wearing or anything. And so draft night, we're in the green room at the table and everything. And when they called his name, you 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 know, we stand up, we hug, we congratulating. So my I turned to sit to sit back down and he had already went across the stage, but he opened up his jacket and so, you know, the TV and the audience there and everybody's seen it, but I didn't see the initial because like I said, I was turning around to sit back down and everything kind of happened so fast. They kind of shoot you this way so fast. So I didn't actually see him do it, but my phone started blowing up with friends uh, sending me pictures and texting me and saying, Oh my God, when he opened up his jacket, I just started bawling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so when I when I um I saw the pictures that they were sending, I was like, Oh my God, he really did it. Oh my god, and you know, it just, you know, touched my heart. So it was it was really a special. It was a special moment, even though it was a little delayed for me. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, he's he's done more than that. Now, I mean, through the uh, uh, the Foxhole Family Foundation, you all together have been working to do extraordinary things to raise awareness for breast cancer, and he's really using his platform as a basketball star to continue to bang home that drum. The messaging you and I have been talking about today—you know, get checked out there. You know, do not wait. Early
2: detection, save lives. Early detection, save lives. So, yeah.
1: And uh, to that end, I know that coming up on October 24th, uh, you and the foundation, you're teaming up for Paint Sacramento Pink. So talk to us a little bit about that.
2: Since 2017, when De'Aaron was drafted and we started the Foxhole Family Foundation, we wanted to focus on uh, families affected by breast cancer and underprivileged youth through sports and education. So my husband has the sports side and I have the breast cancer side. And so um, uh, we uh, partnered with an a organization in Sacramento um, called Ambia Aware and we've been partnering with them since 2017. And so this year Paint Sacramento Pink is another organization that was uh, kind of spin off of Abby Aware, and what they've been doing all year long is raising awareness for breast cancer throughout the Sacramento area. They have pop up shops. They have a lot of different um, pink paraphernalia that they've been selling all year long to donate to Abby Aware for uh, breast cancer support. Where it pays for. Uh, women in treatment it pays for your mammograms it pays for if you can't afford you know your treatment and to feed your family or utilities or your regular living it, it this fund covers debt so we've been uh partnering with them like i said since 2017 i'll be aware uh the paints sacramento pink just came on board this year and they have been doing a wonderful job as far as getting the word out in the community and having different events like every every weekend, a uh, couple of days throughout the week, it's just been all over the Sacramento area. Paint-packed Sacramento pink. Uh, they have um, a fire truck that uh, has been uh, it's going to be part of the event on, on the 24th where uh, one of the fire units in the Sacramento area have paint their engine uh, pink for pink cancer uh, breast cancer awareness month. And so we're going to, I'm going to go out um, and meet with them on the, the 23rd and the 24th. There's an event on the 23rd also, but the 24th is the big like a combination of all the um, events that they've had throughout this um, year and right now, it'll be about $50,000 that have been raised through this um, effort to donate to Albiaware Aware for breast cancer families and survivors and for their treatment and to support them in any way that we can. So the Foxhole Family Foundation have been uh, part of this effort. And on the 24th, we're going to have a big celebration of Match. Flash mob, and uh, you're gonna build a scarecrow, and then I'll be judging what scarecrow win the prize or whatever scarecrow was. not. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a nice event.
1: Gonna be a pink scarecrow, right?
2: It's gonna. I think they're gonna have to have they're gonna have to have something in it pink.
1: I would imagine so. I would imagine so. Well, Miss Fox, let me tell you, you are really just such an inspiration and God bless you for the courage that you displayed and everything that you're doing now to continue to spread awareness and talking so openly about this and, and your battle. And I just, I cannot thank you enough for being here with us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: If you scroll down to the episode notes, you will find a link to the Foxhole Family Foundation where you can see all of the efforts that Miss Fox and DeAaron Fox, what they're doing to beat breast cancer and help women in their community live healthier lives. And if there is someone in your life who is battling breast cancer or is a thriver, or maybe that's you, I would love to mention them on the show. I would love to share their story. Send it to me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Chuck Carroll WLC. Send me a direct message on either platform. I would love to share that story at Chuck Carroll WLC. Let's get some more inspiration out there. And don't forget that there are also links to everything that Dr. Funk talked about on the show today. Her cancer kicking summit, her book and a link to take the let's beat breast cancer challenge right now. All of that is in the episode notes. And when you sign up for free to take that challenge at letsbeatbreastcancer.org, you'll also receive a complimentary digital goodie bag that is filled with even more cancer-fighting tools and ideas that will turn you into a lean, mean, healthy cancer-fighting machine. letsbeatbreastcancer.org or click the link in the episode notes. And if you haven't already done so, please help us get this information, this really life saving information, out to the women and everybody who needs it the most. And the easiest way you can do that right now is just by subscribing to the Exam Room podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your shows. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five star rating. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Christy Funk and Lorraine Fox for joining us here today. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based and let's beat breast cancer.